One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombus donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombus.com/acast code acast. Hello and welcome to Clash of the Titles, the podcast that sees two movies with something in common. Go head to head to see which one does it better. So, on the last episode, we got the chilly willies in Antarctica with Kurt Russell and the boys in John Carpenter's The Thing. And so, on this episode 39 part 2 we meet the challenger taking on that slice of sci-fi horror in the blue corner coming in at a whopping 2 hours and 47 minutes unless you're talking about the four part Netflix version which comes in at a butter numbing 3 and a half hours it's Tarantino's eighth film we're talking about the hateful 8 so who is going to emerge victorious Let's find out. It's Clash of the Titles. Release the Kraken. Hello, Clash Potters. I'm Alex Zane. I'm Vicky Crompton. I'm Chris Tilly. So, as you just heard, the last movie we covered was The Thing. On this episode, going up against it is The Hateful Eight. A quick recap uh, then. Chris, these were your choices. What connects these two movies? It is if it's snowing and you see Kurt Russell run. <laughs> so that is the connection between the hateful eight and the thing. You gave the hateful eight to Victoria. Victoria, over to you. Right, I'm really excited about this, Chris. I've done this as an homage to you, like the style that you have um, taken on as your own throughout the course of this podcast. Are you ready? But I'm not going to sing because I don't have your. Unbelievable confidence, um, but anyway, bear with me. You ready? <laughs> Be nice there. I had other terrible things I could have said, but no. Right, you ready? You ready? You ready? Okay, bear with. Sometimes it's hard to be a woman, giving all your hand to just one hangman. You'll have bad times, and he'll also have bad times doing things that you don't like one bit, such as constantly smashing your face in. But stand by your hangman, give him one arm to cling to, and some warm stew to chuck at you. When that cabin is cold and lonely, because after all, he's just a hangman. What do you think? <laughs> That's nice, isn't it? Nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it was a, it was about as good as when Chris does it. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> Except I'm going to be much more encouraging, and uh, you'd be much nicer than you are when I do it. <laughs> just much nicer, generally. Yeah. New rule. New rule. We're not. We're not reversioning songs anymore as an introduction. I'm just sort of I'm putting the kibosh on that oh, you know from here on in. You're jealous because you've never done it and you don't know how satisfying it can be. Do you know do you know why I've never done it? Because I've heard them done. So yeah. <laughs> <Is> it shit. <laughs> it just so, never works. It's it, it probably might work written down, but it, it's just never worked. Uh so both of you just 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 do do better things in future. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize that we were taking notes, but nonetheless. Um... This here is Daisy Domergue. She's wanted dead or alive for murder. When that sun comes out, I'm taking this woman to hang. Is there anybody here committed to stopping me from doing that? Well, well, well. Looks like Minnie's haberdashery is about to get cozy for the next few days. Yes, it does. 
one of them fellas is not what he says he is. Move a little strange, you're gonna get a bullet. Not a warning, not a question. A bullet. So, uh, The Hateful Eight, would you like to tell me about the first time you saw this extremely long film? Yeah, I saw, I saw, I think, the super long version. I don't know about you, Alex. I saw the preview in London for it for the press at the Odeon Leicester Square, the roadshow presentation, Mm. uh, which had an overture, which had an interval. I think it might have had an extra scene or two. So I saw quite an epic version of it, um, which was... And how was uh, it? How was it watching, uh, being in the cinema for that long? I mean, obviously, uh, you were blessed with an interval, but was it acceptable to sit in a cinema seat? And also, was it a comfy cinema seat? Yeah. Yeah, it was super exciting. It was fine. I mean, you know, I saw Dance with Wolves. I've seen Avatar. You know, you watched long films in the (laughs) cinema. Um, Although I think Dance with Wolves had an interval as well back in the day. It did. Yeah, back in the day. But um, no, I really enjoyed it. And the interval... were you on an end seat though? What did you have an aisle seat? Because like what my legs aren't as long as yours, Alex. I was going to say you've got really long legs, and Chris oh, it's, doesn't. It's it's not the size of my legs; it's the size of a bladder, a, a sort of human bladder. <laughs> I'm more interested in. Did you, uh, do you not get a kind of a, a social anxiety when you have to squeeze past people to use the lavatory? And if you do. Do you not find your entire cinema experience is based on not filling up your bladder beforehand so no, you don't I like have to it. live through that horror? I like squeezing past people, getting right up in their face, pressing myself against them. Anything for human contact, I enjoy it. Also, the point That's was, why, Alex, no, the so- version I saw of it had an interval and therefore it was less than the length of a movie before you could nip to the loo. So, um, And the interval where it was placed and... Um, the fact that you could then go and have a chat about what you'd just seen and what was about to happen, potentially, actually really uh, improved the experience for me. I really enjoyed that aspect of it. So um, I had a fantastic first viewing of this. How about you, Al? I never saw this at the cinema. Uh, the first time I watched this, I was um, I just had my wisdom teeth out and I was on quite a lot of painkillers. And I decided to watch this movie. <laughs> And um, the painkillers weren't really working, but they had told me that I wasn't allowed to drink alcohol uh, with the painkillers, which was annoying. So I drank half a bottle of whiskey and <laughs> I had the best time. I thought I was trapped in Millie's haberdashery. I was so <laughs> off my head. Um, but I do remember, which I'm sure we'll talk about. I remember being like, oh, my God, this is amazing. I'm there. This is so cool. And then by the end, I was like, Wait, did I miss something? Why is that? How's that the end? I've invested three hours in your bloody movie, Tarantino. Do better than that at the end. Well, quite right. Um, I did. I did. I put off watching it for ages when it first came out because someone told me I wouldn't like it in a very well-meaning way. They're like, "You just, you know, what happens to the woman? You won't like it." And that was enough for me to sort of flick past it. Just like, oh, I can't engage with that. But then I finally got round to it and I was fine. I was like, oh, I don't know why they were worried. I don't think that the violence is too skewed towards um, Daisy Domagoo as played by um, Jennifer Jason Lee. I just, I w- it was fine by me. It was fine. And then I watched it again in the week and I did feel more squeamish about it this time and I did feel a bit weird about it. Um, but I suppose we can get on to that. Um this film had a bit of a bumpy start. So the script, one of the versions of Quentin Tarantino's script was leaked um, via Gorka, uh, I think in around t- uh, 2013. And he went bonkers about that yeah. and, and sued them and said, I'm not making it anymore because you've ruined everything. Um, but that, he changed his mind and did another draft and had an actor's read through. And then it was back. Um, although he has said, Quentin Tarantino said that what's on screen isn't anything like the read through and he went through quite a few versions and there's quite a few different endings and all the rest of it until you get to the film that we um, have. So I don't know if you want to talk about, I mean, 
it takes a while to get going, but obviously what we're looking at is a sort of contained thriller slash mystery sort of verging into horror um, at Minnie's Haberdashery, which is a staging post in the Wyoming mountains to provide weary travellers with somewhere to rest when they're crossing the mountain. And we've got a group of eight, the hateful eight, who are trapped there during a blizzard. And the main thrust of it is people aren't who they say they are. Um, And Daisy is on her way to the hangman. And we believe, the audience believe, that she isn't going to go quietly. So potentially someone's there to bust her out of um, Minnie's haberdashery. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, no, sorry. I was trying to work out. I can't remember whether it was ever revealed who leaked the script um i don't think so no because a few of the actors that did that that had the copy they're in the film so he presumably quentin tarantino doesn't think it was any of them um i just i remember and this isn't me saying he did it but i remember at the time weren't a few people talking about it being michael madsen who leaked it like i think they said that only a few people had had it like Bruce Dern and Tim Roth and Michael Madsen at all. Had I thought it was Christoph time. Waltz. I thought it was Christoph Waltz. Oh. He's not in it. He's not in it. Yeah, he, he, was, he was potentially going to play the um, the Tim Roth character, I think. And I thought oh. someone said it was his agent. I'm worried that we're pointing the finger here and we're going to get sued. <laughs> no, I, no. I, certainly, I, I. That's why I said I'm not saying it was him. But there, it was reported at the time because Michael Madsen did say to Quentin Tarantino. Um, People are saying it's me. You need to say something in public. And I think Quentin Tarantino was like, I know it's not you. Yeah. Um, or, but the, it was it was talked about. We're not in trouble by saying it was talked about at the time that Michael Madsen did sort of have a conversation with Tarantino going, look, tell them it wasn't me because everyone's going, it's bloody me. But if you're worried, Chris, um, lawyer up. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I suppose I, I will throw this over to you, Chris, because it's probably more your sort of thing. Do you want to talk about the 70 mil film and all the rest of it and the lenses? <laughs> I don't. Um, the lenses that were used and how the Weinstein company had to come up with like $10 million to be able to refit, retrofit theatres to be able to show the fucking film in the first place hey, and wait, all the rest of it. Well, if I, I might want to talk about that. Oh, gosh, I'm so sorry. Please do. I, I don't, but I might do. Just ask in future. <laughs> Just, you're so bossy today. What's wrong I, with you? I too find it very boring, but <laughs> we should we should in a couple of sentences just say what they did do. So it was shot in ultra Panavision, um, which sort of is anamorphic but retains the depth that you want. And there was only ten films ever made in that way. So this was the eleventh film. Um, and they had to you they used the old cameras and lenses and they had to make special new magazines so Tarantino could shoot his ultra long takes um <sighs> yeah but yeah it was um, I, I do think it makes a difference <laughs> when you're watching the film because obviously you're only getting the real benefit early on when you're seeing the snowy vistas but later yeah. in the film it does enable Tarantino to be able to tell stories in the foreground and the background mm. yeah really. Really yeah. artfully. And so it does actually make a difference because you've got, you've almost got, especially when you watch it the second time, you've got two films going on, haven't you? Yeah. You've got, you've got what you're seeing, but you've got what, what the business that's going on in the background. So I think that's yeah. the other interesting aspect about that. He said it helped him with the blocking of the scenes because the film picks up so much detail. He was, it, it's a more rich scene because you can clearly see who's, um, you know, the difference between the background and the foreground and where the characters are at every point. And mm. that helps when you're trying to create, um, a sense of mystery. One a sort of geeky fact, which I liked, is that because of the they're using these ancient lenses, um, they didn't have a zoom lens. And obviously, he's really well known for like that Hong Kong zoom, the sort of like the rush zoom. Um, so in order to zoom, they just did it on a crane, so rather than like having a special lens. He was just flinging people around the place to create that effect, the zoom effect. That's a fun fact, <laughs> no? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I thought so. Yeah, there you go. That's me trying uh, really hard there. Uh, before we get really into it, we should just briefly touch upon what the influences were, because obviously Tarantino wears his his influences on his sleeve. Um, they are the thing. Is that right? He said. Well, he said that um, there's three specific films that are a bit of an influence. That's Key Largo, The Petrified Forest and The Iceman Cometh, because they're all about bars or places that everyone congregates at and you're not sure who you can trust. They're all really great stories in their own right. So if you haven't seen them, I recommend them. But yeah, as you say, yeah. it's actually two things he said. 
uh, Vicky, it was the thing. And the other big influence on it was Reservoir Dogs. (laughs) (laughs) When you get to a point in your career where you're referencing yourself, then I think you've done all right. (laughs) That's the thing, isn't it? But that's because, uh, well, we'll get on to the end. But I think that's because you do have a Reservoir Dogs vibe in it and the end of that is so explosive like emotionally and the reveal and this doesn't have that and i think maybe that's why i was left ever so slightly miffed by the final reel yeah um i think the easiest way to go through it would be to pick uh apart the characters of the the key players um so Uh we've got john ruth played by uh, Kurt Russell. I would say at first he's the anchor of this story, um, and he's the hangman taking Daisy to meet her end, and he's um, waylaid at Minnie's because of the blizzard. So you, it, I think he's a brilliant character and really interesting because you, you're with him because as an actor he's got so much pull, um, and you want to hear every word that comes out of his mouth. But he's a hangman and he can cannot stop hitting Daisy in the face. So you're are you supposed to like him or not? Which is a uh, um, a more interesting way to watch the film. Yeah, that's kind of a trick they play on you almost, isn't it? I feel like that you take it for granted he's going to be the hero. Yeah. And then as the film goes on, you're having to question your own decision for being in his corner uh, based on the things he says and does. Uh, I watched this week, there's a, a documentary came out at the end of last year called The First Eight, all about Quentin Tarantino. Um featuring a lot of people that work with him. And one of his producers, they asked the question, uh, is Kurt Russell's character, John Ruth, based on Harvey Weinstein? No. And the woman doesn't deny it, actually. She kind of smiles. And then she just says, what I will say is he was much nastier on the page. And that when you've got a guy like Kurt Russell playing him, he immediately becomes more likeable. So, uh, yeah, that was quite a surprising... that is interesting. When hmm. she's, uh, what, what do you take from that? When she said, when you've got Kurt Russell playing him, he becomes more likable, like almost intentionally they played the character more likable or it was done as written and he just has a natural likability. Did they soften him? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I don't know because I've not read the script, but um... no, I, I'm sort of mean. I, I mean it as a as a discussion point. Although sometimes I do look to you, Francis, Chris. <laughs> you do. You put me on the spot. Um, yeah, I, it's uh... it's just an interesting one because I agree with Vicky. He's you. You are forced to question, um, like how how this how this character is sort of your your hero or even as an anti hero. He's he's there's so much wrong that he he does by you know morally that you sort of left going right why, but when he does cark it, you are left with a big hole in this film. I yeah. think I, I I I I do remember watching it the first time in my painkiller whiskey haze going. <laughs> oh, I should say right now, don't drink whiskey and do painkillers, kids. But it was very fun. And I just <laughs> remember thinking, like, oh, this is going to suck now he's gone. Why isn't then Major Marquis Warren, played by Samuel L. Jackson, why isn't he the moral centre and the hero? Uh, because he's, you know, he's introduced mere minutes after uh, John Ruth and he lost the whole movie. And in some ways, he is the hero of the story. Yeah, but I think it's a that's. Great no, I, I yeah, it is a really good question, and it's a very it's an an interesting dynamic between the two of them. Sort of uh, plays with uh, like expectations of their mm. characters. So the Lincoln letter is the thing. So John Ruth asks um, Major Marcus Warren, as played by Samuel L. Jackson, to show him his Lincoln letter, ostensibly a letter from President Lincoln saying how amazing. Um, the major is and what a great soldier and what a great guy and all the rest of it. And John, the look on Kurt Russell's face when he's reading this letter, like he's teary and he's, he's so moved. I love it. His boyish joy, his excitement. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. But then when he finds out that the letter is a fake, he says to uh, Samuel L. Jackson, Oh, it's true what they say about your, you people, you can't trust a word that comes out of your mouth. And that's the pivot. That's the, the foundation of the, of their two sort of interaction is that John Ruth is a racist. And the minute 
this black person that he knows does something wrong, he represents all black people. You can't trust anything that any of them say because mm. this person is a liar. But what's more interesting is to have Samuel L. Jackson is not a perfect person because why does he have to be perfect? He can be a black man in the world and not be perfect. And he should still have the same rights and entitlement as a white man in the world, John Ruth, who's not perfect. So if you make Samuel L. Jackson too good, like too objectively good, then you fall into the trap of like making him perfect. Whereas a more interesting character is he's a man and it doesn't matter or it shouldn't matter to you whether he's white or black. He doesn't have to do certain things in order to not um, catch too much blame or, or be a hero for too many people. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And, and it's, a, it's a brilliant conceit, that Lincoln letter. Um, yeah. mm. as he puts it the only time black folk is safe is when white folks is disarmed mm. um uh i think it's the best conceit in this film of which there are quite a few but um no i agree i agree it's inter- it is interesting um where your uh sympathies lie throughout the film because ultimately you know the titles the giveaway they are the hateful eight these are yeah. all pretty despicable people um to the point that actually you forget what nice people are like until that scene where Minnie <laughs> yeah, and everyone, when, when everyone Minnie show said, up. Yeah. And you're like, oh, no, this, so is what normal, this is how normal people behave. Because you've forgotten <laughs> because you've had two hours of this absolute bunch of bastards. <laughs> What's the woman called? That scene with Minnie. And Minnie is lovely. She, Come on in, have some coffee, best coffee in Wyatt, whatever. But the Australian woman, oh, I can't remember her name, but she plays Zoe it Bell's like... Zoe the actress. So yeah, she, she plays it presumably on purpose it's not just the relief at seeing someone normal but she plays it like a little girl and I I found it annoying the first time I still found it annoying again like why is she so cheery why is she so innocent why is she so naive like more so than a normal person I did wonder that are they being more nice than normal people are or is it just because I've spent all this time with these horrible people I did and you're saying it's the it's the former so yeah yeah maybe they are being weirdly objectionably (laughs) nice <laughs> Bring me back to these hateful bastards. Yeah, honestly, though, that's how I feel. So I'm just like, I'm just like, I would rather deal with someone who is just awful than someone who is over the top nice because that requires you to engage with them. If someone's been awful, you can shut down and just sort of go, "Oh, they're awful. I'm not going to interact with them." But when someone's being nice, you become the rude one by going, "I don't want to interact with you." <laughs> are they being nice yeah. in that way that in the way that servers in restaurants in LA are nice? <laughs> exactly. Oh. Right? You know. Fuck off. But, well, you say that. You say that. But this, this, this is the big question. It's like the, the whole service culture thing out there. It's like they're being nice because they survive on tips. So ultimately you get a nicer experience, but it's not genuine. It's false nice. So do you, you, know, do you want someone who basically throws a cup of coffee down in front of you in the UK and goes, get the fucking drink and get out your dick, <laughs> in so many words. Or do you want someone who goes, oh, my God, look at this coffee I'm just giving you. Oh, my God, are you, you're going to have the best time here. And my name, my name's Angie, and I, if you want me to stroke your hair as you drink that, I can do that. <laughs> Not that oh, kind Vicky, of don't restaurant. You know, that's, don't it's weird that Alex would just go to someone. To, have people stroked your hair in restaurants, Alex? I bet they have. <laughs> <laughs> that was way too specific. Uh, no comment, officer. <laughs> How is your hair, by the way, in this time of lockdown? Is it okay? Oh, thanks for asking. Um, I was waiting for that to come up. Yeah, it's um, it's doing really well. Um, I've sort of got a new regime um, going on, and now I realise that you didn't really care. So I'm probably going to stop oh, answering that question. I, I cared a little bit, actually. I'm interested. Yeah. Anyone's tips, hair tips, how to get through lockdown tips, pass them on. What I'm really asking is, is it possible to do a half head of highlights just using the contents of a medicine cabinet? I don't think it is, but I'd like to know. Because that's uh, where tweet, I am right now. Tweet us at ClashPod and let us know. <laughs> uh, my tip is what I'm about to do in the next couple of weeks, uh, shave it all off. Shave your head of hair off. Me? So you, wait, ha- wait, 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 wait. You're going to have a shaved head, but a massive beard. Yeah, I'm going to do an Uncle Albert is what it's called. <laughs> don't, don't, no, don't. I look like my head's Dude. on upside down. Do it. You're going to look like an extra from Mad Max or something. It's going to be great. <laughs> No, I look more like Oscar Isaac in Ex Machina. That, that's, oh, that's the look. Yeah, definitely. Um, 100%. Right. 100%. Anyway, back to the hateful eight. Sorry. 
So let's talk about Daisy because um, Quentin Tarantino himself, so it's not just me, has said, has said that she's at the heart of the story because you, you, she's in you know the open, the opening sequence, and you don't understand what her situation is. You know that she's being hanged for murder, but you get the sense that there might be a little bit more behind that, and she might be guilty, but you know why is she in this situation and what is she going to do about it so she provides the engine for the mystery the minute john ruth states it clearly and says one of you's here to free daisy or something like that and i'm gonna find out who now unfortunately he dies fairly soon after that but it's like the game is afoot formally like you understand that you're in a mystery like fairly sharpish but at least it's been we've got the poirot agatha christie moment of like we're all trapped in here and something's going to happen, and I'm going to find out who it is. Um, however, uh, we, can, we can talk about this at length, or we can skip over it, but it's just um, Quentin Tarantino said he wrote quite a few drafts to try and get to know Daisy a bit better, because she, spoiler, she dies at the end, and he didn't feel right about killing her until he knew her a bit better, which is um, very understandable and quite a noble thing to do. But- wow, I mean, that's a, he wouldn't make a very good assassin. <laughs> uh, Quentin Tarantino's spending a lot of time with you at the moment. Yeah, he said he wanted to get to know me. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the problem is he might know her back to front and inside out and feel able to have her hanged at the end in a very gruesome way, but we don't know her. And it seems unfair that lots of other characters get a really interesting backstory. So think of um, Samuel L. Jackson's character's backstory about him crossing the lines in the Civil War, but he wasn't welcome on either side. A really complicated story, not just good, not just bad, like a mix of both. And think about the way that John Ruth is played. You, you're you kind of rooting for him, but he's an awful person. And Chris Mannix, like he's, he seems like a terrible liar and a live wire, but by the end of the film, he's the moral centre. So, And you have the whole flashback, where you've got the chapter four or five or whatever it is about the four passengers. So we get time with those actors to see what they can do. But Daisy doesn't get anything like that. And she doesn't, it would have been so much fun to have a flashback that showed why she got caught for murder. Do you not think? Yeah, I mean, he he said that he wrote this in a different way, just touching on what you said to, to previous scripts. He normally spends a couple of years writing the first draft from beginning to end and at the end of the process, he feels like he's there. Whereas this is the first time he's done separate drafts. He's done proper proper rewrites like normal people do. Yeah, I was going to say. Did, <laughs> he did say that one of his rewrites, as you said, it was one specific rewrite because, he, as you say, he felt guilty about the violence that was done to Daisy. He wrote a, a single draft that was completely from her point of view so mm. that he understood the emotions she was going through. Uh, and uh, once he got to the end of that draft, he felt no remorse in hanging her, beating her up yeah. and hanging her. Sure. Um, yeah. And you're right. You're absolutely right. Why keep that to yourself then? Um, yeah. I'm sure he shared it with Jennifer Jason Lee, but I think that's a really good point you make. Yeah, it just is. She's such a good actor. It's just a shame that we don't get to see her. And I think I don't think he's saying this on purpose, but it's too tempting to think her whole character is that she's a woman and a murderer, and that in itself is shocking enough that you don't need to know her story because that's enough character. But I don't think it is. Like I would like to know why. I would like to know when. Why she got such a good relationship with her brother that he would come and get her. Why is her life gone the way it's gone that she's in a gang rather than anything else? I don't think it's enough just to go, oh, yeah, but she's a woman. So that's like kind of interesting. And that's enough. She is a very good <coughs> actor, though. There's that brilliant scene where she breaks character, though. You know, the bit where Kurt Russell smashes the guitar and you actually see her go, oh, fuck. Because <laughs> it was, like he thought it was a prop guitar and it was 145 years old on loan. Yeah from a museum <laughs> but i've just watched it so many times because you see her go no don't fucking do that and he's like smash 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 i'm kurt russell as as john ruth puts it she's she's peppery she is peppery <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which she is gets a brilliant a line of- she gets a couple of moments where she licks the blood from her lips and her face and smiles, and uh, she just looks brilliant, devilish, um, mm. uh, sort of laughing maniacally, uh, you know, spitting spitting out teeth. Mm. Um, it mm. must have been a joy to play that character. Yeah, she reminds me a little bit of the Joker in, in The Dark Knight in that respect, in the sense that she takes so much glee in, like, the chaos that is happening around her. She almost like sort of sets it off and then sits back and watches it take place. 
Good comparison. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I've read this somewhere else, but I also thought it by myself, which is why I'm saying it. She looks mm. like Carrie, like for a lot of the film. That's quite distracting. Uh, it sounds like you stole that oh. from somewhere. No, yeah, I, 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 I didn't. Yeah, I didn't steal it because I said I read it, I did, but I did mm. think it. And then I thought, oh, when you, I, did, did you think it after you'd read it? <laughs> no comment, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, uh, someone's poisoned the coffee and we're going to find out who. And is it Senor Bob or Oswaldo something as played by Tim Roth? Um, Mowbray. Oswaldo Mowbray. Um, the cowboy. That was a fun reveal uh, with Oswaldo. Um, what about his accent? Yeah, because I remember getting really annoyed in the cinema that he was doing such a shit posh accent. And then so the, the, the reveal that he was putting it on, the character was, I was very happy with that. Yeah, it's a relief, isn't it? You're just like, oh, thank yeah. God. <laughs> Tim Roth's not this bad an actor. Oh, no. <laughs> He's supposed to be doing a slightly shit accent. And then um, Samuel Jackson is doing, because uh, John Ruth, Kurt Russell is dead, the mantle passes to Samuel L. Jackson to be Poirot and to try and sort out what's happened. But Channing Tatum is hiding under the floorboards and then shoots his bollocks off. So he's laid low. Um, and then we're into Reservoir Dogs, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I forgot. I, I, yeah. Yeah. Does he really shoot? Is, I mean, I know he keeps saying he says his nuts shot off, but is he just taking a bullet to them or is, have they been shot clean off? It, I don't. I know that shouldn't bother me as much as it does, but I'd like to know. Are they that big? That if a bullet went through them, they wouldn't come off. Is that what you're saying? Uh, they vary in size, Victoria. Um, and uh, I, I don't know how big specifically Samuel L. Jackson's bollocks are, or whether he changed the size of them for the role. Uh, but um... <laughs> like a like a wig, <laughs> <laughs> just slotted. Hey, Quentin. <laughs> Quentin, uh, I've really got to grips with my character. The one question I still have is how big are his bollocks? Because uh, that's the last thing I'm going to be working on just before the shoot. Yeah, I'm heading into makeup now, so it's kind of like... <laughs> He's getting on a bit now, isn't he, um, Sam Jackson? So I imagine they're hanging if quite low. Is... No! Oh, God, I knew it was going to... I didn't want to get into old men's bollocks. Like a, like a like hanging low, like a rabbit's ears. <laughs> like a rabbit's ears? You mean like two walnuts in a carrier bag? Well, I, I, won't they be getting smaller? Do they get smaller when you get older? So maybe more like peanuts in a in a sock. Peanuts well, in a I want... in a in a sock in a in a pop sock, like a thin sock. Uh, <laughs> I yeah. said pop sock for a while. That's weird. 
The the bag gets bitter, uh, bigger, uh, not bitter, although it can be. Uh, it depends. Oh, I mean, they've been, 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 <laughs> been out in the wilds for a long time. I'm sure it's quite bitter if you if you were to sample it. Um, but uh, yeah, the bag gets bigger, but the uh, the actual uh, the, the ball area uh, decreases in size. So yeah. I think there's a good chance that the bullet passed straight through the sack without hitting the ball. Well, I tell you who would know, just to, um, you'll like this segue, is, um, I've forgotten his name, the General's son, who Samuel L. Jackson's character has a strange sort of 10 minutes where he convinces the general that he's killed his son, um, but prior to killing him, um, he made him perform oral sex for him in order to warm his mouth. You like that segue? That works, doesn't it? Bringing it all back. Yeah. Wait, I, I've forgotten. <laughs> but I, I remember. I remember that scene, but he did it to warm the other guy's mouth. <laughs> no, that's what he says to him. He says, "You'll be surprised what some people will do to get warm." And he's promised him I a blanket. Know. Wait, wait, no, no, wait, 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 wait. I understand why this. Yeah. Is... <laughs> no, wait, right, wait, yeah. Wait, wait, because wait. of the right. Yeah, sorry. I understand now because if he does that. He gets a blanket. No, you but don't also put, he says you, it don't, was... you don't. That warmth does not dis, like disperse from a penis if you put it inside oh, your no. mouth. Like, how oh, would no. you know? How would you know? In yeah. fact, of all of us, why <laughs> should you? You should be asking me. Is that true, Vicky? <laughs> yeah, it is actually. <laughs> oh no! I Go really on, want reverse, to move on. Reverse. I'm going to pump the brakes and reverse, please. <laughs> okay, oh, never mind. Shit. Um, um, I do like that? in that scene though. I like the various words he uses for his penis. He calls it his pecker, his Johnson, and his dingus. Dingus, that's a good one. I haven't heard that for ages. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's uh, General Sandy Smithers is the son. Um, Thank you. Forgotten yes, that. and uh, but um, obviously this scene is very similar to the scene in um, True Romance between Dennis Hopper and Christopher Walken. Mm. In, in that film, um, Hopper's character is telling a racist story so that Walken will kill him quicker and not torture him for information. And in this one, he's doing it so that the dad will take the gun and it will there yeah. be either can therefore kill him in self defence. But I feel like it is again. <laughs> you know, he's he said that this is a film that's in homage to Reservoir Dogs, but it's actually um, you know it takes pieces from a lot of his back catalogue. Um, as it goes along, and I think this is probably the most obvious one. Yes, I yes I agree. I agree. And is this an obvious thing to say? But I I sort of missed it the first time round, and only noticed it properly second time round. But he is lying, isn't he? He never he never killed him. He didn't. He didn't. Um, everything he says is a lie, isn't? Do you think? No, I didn't I, get that from it. Well, but only because so. he says your son. Um, the general is talking about uh, buying a peach orchard with his money and his wife and all the rest of it. And then Samuel Jackson says, oh, I knew a, I knew a boy um, who talks about a peach orchard or something like that. And he says, in fact, he told me his whole life story, but he doesn't corroborate any further than that. So he doesn't provide any evidence that says, oh, I, it definitely was your boy because of this. He just runs with the peach thing, and but he doesn't say anything else. So I thought he was lying because he wants to kill him anyway because he's a racist piece of shit, but he doesn't offer up any other proof that he did know that boy no yeah no that's true i hadn't thought of that and i think he's lying it's so specific and extreme it is it is just completely designed to uh make that man pick up the gun and so i i do think it's it's made up in the way that you know uh, this film and a lot of tarantino's films are about storytelling and myths and legends and lies and truth and and um yeah but I, you know i don't think that makes it any less effective yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, where were we? We were sort of like lingering around the end. And then there's a, I lose the thread a bit, but Chris Mannix, uh, Samuel Jackson has had his nut shot off and he's going to die. He's going to bleed to death, we think. But Chris Mannix, the would-be sheriff of um, Red Rock, he seems to be okay. He's been shot in the leg and it sort of seems like he might make it. So he's making deals with Daisy, having um, her brother's, she's got her brother's skull all over her face, but she's uh, she's going to make a deal saying that there are 15 members of um, her brother's gang waiting in the town and that if Chris Mannix doesn't make a deal, everyone in that town will be killed. And so what a shit sheriff he will be. So there's a series of trade-offs of people's bodies. Um, but then basically everyone dies and... 
Chris Mannix and Major Marcus Warren hang Daisy from the rafters. And that's kind of it. Yeah. Did you ever try Red Rock Lager, by the way? Now, I kept thinking of it when I was watching this. Is that the one in a green can or a green bottle? It was the one that years ago, Leslie Nielsen uh, used to advertise from Police Squad. Like, mm. he did a police, he played Frank Drebin in the adverts, and he goes, Red Rock. It's not red, and there are no rocks in it. <laughs> I don't think I did. <laughs> okay. Sorry, uh, that, go on. That, that ending you referenced, though, and it is the same ending as the thing, isn't it? You've got a black guy and a white guy sitting mm. together, potentially about to die or stay alive. Uh, mm. it, it's, it's, it's similar. It's up to you to decide whether they make it or not. Um, yeah. And I do like that. I, I mean, it's, I've, it's sometimes I think it's almost weird how, how much he is paying tribute to the thing in, in a different genre and a different style. But he really does. You know, you talked about those, Alex, in your, when you were coming up with them, the, 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 the sticks in the snow to get to an outhouse. Like that's definitely, right. you know, that's very much on purpose, isn't it? It's like, it I almost seems so. unnecessary to put that in. No, I think because... so. And if we, if, if we think about, you know, when we talked about the thing on the last episode and part of our problem, or well, not our problem, but we were sort of saying that, you know, it, there should have been a bit more character development. There should have been more people talking in rooms. We'd have liked to get to know these characters more. I honestly think if you had pitched the thing as not necessarily one room like Millie's haberdashery, but, uh, you know, everyone was inside a lot more. You didn't need to be going outside too much. And it was guys trying to work things out about each other and which one was the alien through conversation. Um, then I think that would have been a possibly a, a much better film. And I say that liking the thing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you could potentially see, though, both of these films, obviously you'd have to do some, some interesting stuff with the effects, but both of them would work as plays, potentially. Yeah, they would. Um, yeah, I, can, I, I didn't know that Quentin Tarantino actually had started this as a novel. I think he, he initially started writing this as a novel. Um, when you watch it, it feels... I, I honestly watch this and I feel like I'm... I'm reading. It's like a, the script is like a novel. Like you're watching a novel. Well, he was definitely going to go in that direction when the uh, when the script leaked. He he sort of said in a huff, "I'm doing it as a as a book rather than a film." And he said this, and certainly that documentary. I think Tim Roth or Michael Madsen allude to it that he. I, I think once he has done that, the next film he will he will start writing books rather than making movies. So he's he's slowly yeah. moving in that direction. I think you're absolutely. You're fine to talk about... So I'm just on a WhatsApp uh, a chat with my lawyer. You can talk about the <laughs> script being leaked and and him thinking of writing a novel. That's fine. We're good with that, Chris. Go on. And you said it. Christoph Waltz leaked it, did you, Alex? <laughs> just, just, <laughs> just for clarity. Just got my, dic- just got my dictaphone here. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to need you to say the words, Christoph Wong. <laughs> um, but in terms of like homaging his own film, some of these tense conversations where you're trying to figure out who's telling the truth and who isn't. I mean, he does that in most of his films, but certainly in Glorious Bastards, it reminded me of. And the reveal of people being under the floorboards. Uh, oh, yeah. That, you know, that's paying homage to himself. Um yeah. One thing I spotted on this watch is that at the end of this film, um, Tim Roth is on the floor covered in blood uh, and he's a bad guy pretending to be a good guy, whereas the Reverend of Wild Dogs, he's on the floor covered in blood and he's a good guy pretending to be a bad guy. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, he's playing little tricks with his own work as well. Uh, You know, does that become um, annoying? Is that him sort of essentially filleting himself or do you think that works i think when you're looking for those things you spot them i don't think they're so obvious <laughs> that they detract from the film i certainly on my first watch did not notice any of them I, I i think maybe i i felt there was a vague similarity between this and reservoir dogs but i certainly wasn't to the point of going oh oh he's taken that bit oh he's done that bit it stands alone as a wonderful film so was this uh, was this a second watch for you, Alex, and a first sober watch, or have you seen it more than twice? Who's got the um, time, babe? Who has got the time? Like watching <laughs> it twice is a stretch. Do you not think? Well, Alex like, has I'm watched just, it twice. I'm just asking if he's watched it a third time. 
I've not. I've only watched it. Oh shit! No, I have. I've. This is. This was my third time watching it. Yeah, and I, I, you know, and I could genuinely watch it again. And that is testament to just how what an amazing experience watching this film is. Even though you know the ending, and even yeah. though in my case I don't much like the ending, I will still rewatch this because everything up to the end uh, is so good that yeah. it actually doesn't matter that the end is not my cup of tea. It's, I mean, that that tells you what a great film it is. But that's why it's a shame that... It's, I know it's not it's not the end of the world, but everyone gets it because the dialogue is so naturalistic but full of information. So the stuff you miss first time round, you then pick up second time round. So first time I watched this, I wasn't really paying attention to Chris Mannix's character beyond whether or not he was lying about being the sheriff. So second time round, when I had time to listen to him and the thing about his dad's gang and how they, you know, the unconditional surrender, but his dad's gang was like holed up with like 400 soldiers and they didn't have a chance. That's so fascinating. Um, and it's just a shame that I don't have that same thing for Daisy to do because it would even things out and it just would have been brilliant anyway. Like that's that the, that actor, what he can do as a writer and all the potential, it would have been brilliant. So did you believe Walton Goggins was uh, the show of Chris Mannix? Do you think he's telling the truth? Yes. By the yeah, end. By the end, yeah. 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 And was it so? Did you guys have a problem with the ending then? So you you were kind of alluding to it, Alex. Do you th- what 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 doesn't work for you? Because I feel like that's the ending it's building up to. But I feel like this time, I it's my third watch. I I was kind of I'd almost lost interest by that point, and I couldn't figure out why. I just don't really know what the what the ending is. What you're really meant to take uh, away from it in terms of like to invest three hours. In a movie um, that is so clever in terms of its writing, but doesn't really seem to have anything to say at the end. There's no sort of, there's no twist, there's no lingering. And there you go. How about that? Mm. You're just left with these two guys. I mean, there are two ways of looking at it as far as I'm concerned. It's either a sort of like, well, what did you expect? It's the hateful eight. They're all hateful wasn't that exactly what I said it was going to be, a group of awful people get their comeuppance at Millie's haberdashery. Or perhaps it's that there is some sort of friendship, uh, camaraderie that emerges between Chris Mannix and <coughs> Major Warren by the end. They sort of, those two, like get like sort out their differences to a, a, a certain extent and become, in inadvertent commas, friends. Yeah, and I, I, I feel like it's about justice, and justice does get served at the end of the film, uh, in that the two least hateful people in the room, um, of the eight, uh, have a chance at, at, at moving on, and and Daisy gets what was coming at her, coming to her from the start of the film because of the things she's done previous to the, the film starting, um, but maybe yeah, as you say, maybe it's because you're expecting some kind of twist or to have the rug pulled out from under you, as it has done throughout the film and and it just it's pretty straightforward those final 10 minutes there you go i think that's the word it i think it's just it's not bad it's just more straightforward than i expected yeah that's fair um do you want to do the bits or have you got anything else you would like to share with the group nope ready for the bits okay super uh alex what was your best scene Best scene. Um, can I have the entire carriage ride at the start? Because <laughs> yeah. I, I loved it. I just, in terms of, it's thirty-five minutes uh, you've just picked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of the fact that I just remember the first time I watched it, and I will say this: this is before the whiskey and painkillers had mixed, so I was still very much compass mentors at this point. I was just it was such a shock. To be watching a film, I, like you sort of go, you just don't see an opening scene like that that is going to last 35 minutes. Do you think maybe like after sort of 10 minutes, I'm like, this is insane. I remember being just so shocked that he was running an opening like bit in the carriage for that length of time and shocked in a way that, you know, when you get excited where cinema shocks you still and you're like, wow, it's so bold. It's nuts. This is amazing. I had that experience and obviously, you know, Kurt Russell and Samuel L. Jackson, Jennifer Jason Lee, the three-way interaction, then Walton Goggins turning up. I, 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 it's great. And um, I just haven't sort of, I haven't had the film sort of like blow me away so much as uh, 
that start in terms of its boldness. Uh, Vicky, what's your favourite scene? My favourite scene is the, which I talked about before, which is the reveal that the Lincoln letter is false. Um, because it just it's just, a, a, there's so much going on thematically uh, and for the characters. And I think it's really deftly handled. And it's funny as well. And it's sad for lots of different reasons all at the same time. Cool. Um, I'm going to pick the two hours and 10 minutes after the coach ride. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, Al, I, you know, I'm with you. I think the, if I picked a moment from that sequence, it would be when she spits on the letter, uh, Kurt Russell punches her and they both fly out of the carriage. I think that's a, <laughs> it's just a great uh, moment. But I'm going to go for that um, 10 minute speech by Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, I've got problems with it, it and it is really, really horrible. But I'm picking it because... Um, it was such a memorable moment watching it in a packed cinema, all excited to see, you know, the preview of the new Tarantino film. And you could hear the audience nervously fidgeting as it got more and more unpleasant, that story. And then that was when the interval came as well in the film. And so at the interval, just talking with other people who'd been watching it about what we'd just seen, it was a really memorable cinematic moment for me. So I'm picking that. Cool. Are you trying to say we should have perhaps taken an interval after we dissected the nutsack earlier in this podcast? <laughs> Just to let people be able to walk away, step back from their headphones and go, wow, were they trying to be more graphic than Samuel L. Jackson's speech? <laughs> What's your MVW, Vicky? Um, so obviously there's lots to choose from, but I would say on second viewing, it is Samuel L. Jackson as Major Warren. I thought he was majestic. Um, and everything we've said already, which is he's a good enough guy for you to want to follow him through the narrative, but um, it's been avoided, like making him perfect, which I really like. Alex? Um, do you know what? I started uh, trying to work out my MVW, my voice valuable, whatever, uh, going through the characters, because at times I think it's Chris Mannix. I think Walton Goggins' Chris Mannix is just, I mean, you know, he's a brilliant actor, and this role is like him, like, you know, just being the best. But then you sort of go, actually, I think pretty much everyone is giving one of their best performances in this because the script is so good. You know, I mean, Michael Madsen, I don't think has ever been better. Uh, Damien Bashir as Senior Bob is so good. <laughs> uh, like, I, it's, I, I think it would be unfair. At least, you know, for me, I just couldn't pick one. So the reason they're all so good is the script. So it's the script. I'm actually picking the script as my MVW. I can't believe it didn't get an Oscar nomination. That's one of those, what? Come on, the Academy. Don't be dicks about this. It's so good. And to be that gripping, set in one bloody room for two and a half hours um, is all down to that script. So mm. it's the script. Mm. And as scripts don't write themselves, Quentin Tarantino gets a, gets a shout out. They do write themselves. Oh, uh, there's yeah. a program you can get. It's called uh, Eight People in One Room, something like that. I don't know. It's not. It's not expensive. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> Is that uh, true? No. <laughs> <laughs> You're funny. Uh, lovely stuff. <laughs> I'm so annoyed. Wait a minute. <laughs> All right, fine. Uh, Carry on. Well, I, I feel like I should mention here Ennio Morricone because we haven't properly talked about him and it's quite interesting the fact that uh tarantino wanted him to score it he didn't have time but he let his wife read the script and morricone's wife said you have to do this so he wrote him one piece of music which is the main piece of music and tarantino says i love this this is perfect uh and i want you to you know have you got anything else like could you do me just a quick thing a bit like your music that you did for the thing and that's when he told him well actually I've got a whole load of music for the thing that, that Carpenter didn't want to use. You can have it. And so that's how you've got this weird sort of Frankenstein music score, which is so uh, effective in this film. Um, but uh, I'll go for Jennifer Jason Lee. I think she's really, really good in this. I, I, I really enjoy her peppery performance uh, for the reasons I've said. And um, yeah, I kind of, as you say, Vicky, I wish... She'd had a bit more to her character and backstory. I think she kind of earned it. So, yeah, mm. I just I think it's one of her best performances. So she's my pick. Uh, and finally, and Alex. Not, oh, not, sorry, not, not to not to try and stir the pot, but do you remember there was that weird story um, about any um, any Morricone calling Quentin Tarantino? He did an interview for Playboy, 
and apparently was quite rude about Quentin Tarantino in it, and then said he was going to sue Playboy because he never said that. It was Playboy Germany. Uh, and it's just, a, I just remember it being a really weird story. Like, he, they quoted him as calling Quentin Tarantino's films trash and saying he calls out of nowhere and then wants to have a finished film score in days. And it's just a really weird story. I just felt it would balance out the uh, accusations we were throwing around earlier. Well, the script, right? Piling up more accusations on someone. Yeah. <laughs> I, I figure it, may, it it would just confuse the matter. It's like, you know, more, yeah. more ugly, yeah, more ugly not... gossip. It's like, but, yeah. who knows what, what, what were we talking about? Did Ennio Morricone, like, did he leak yeah. the script? That makes I mean, perfect sense. They couldn't have time in court for both issues. So <laughs> just do none of them. Yeah. <laughs> And I heard that Tim Roth resorted to cannibalism on this set as well. That's I don't know if that's so... true. Yeah, that's true. That's another truth. Well done, Vicky. <laughs> have you got any truth? <laughs> uh, it's about Michael Madsen's testicles, so I don't know if we want to go into it. <laughs> uh, Alex, what would you change, if anything? At the end. Um, I don't know how. And I know that's a kind of ridiculous thing to sort of just say. Because, I mean, undoubtedly, Quentin Tarantino wrote the best end for his movie and I've already picked the script as the bloody <laughs> Not to then go, yeah, the script is the best thing about this movie, apart from the end. I don't know. I just, I, I just sort of, I feel like the journey is way better than the destination on this film, for want of a better cliche. Vicky. Um, Chris Mannix never was that sheriff and we find that out for sure. So towards the end when he's making deals with Daisy, um, I, he said, I can't remember what he says, but uh, Samuel L. Jackson says something like, oh, what is it like? Like, why, why do you care? Or someone says like, why? Oh, I can't, uh, do you know what? Edit this out. I can't remember what someone says. However, Chris Mannix has the opportunity to say, I was never the sheriff, you idiots. And I will make a deal with her because... It is really important to me. Oh, that's it. She's like, well, you don't you care about the town? And he could say, no, because I'm not the sheriff of the town. So there we are. That's the better ending. Can I just can I just throw something in? Because I remember at the end of the thing, uh, you really you said how important <laughs> it, it wasn't knowing who was the thing or not. I'm uh -huh. just going to say, I don't think it, I don't think it's important really um, whether you know whether he is or he isn't. That's that's not what the end is about. It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter knowing whether he's the sheriff. Or not. Uh, anyone who doesn't realise how funny I'm being, check out the end of the last podcast. I'm laughing, <laughs> so that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter, though. It just doesn't matter. What, what are you talking about? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether we know that or not. <laughs> fine. Is that your impression of Vicky? Is that an impression of Vicky? I think it is, yeah. Because did you see, Alex, did you see we got an email about Vicky to the uh, class? No, you didn't. No, I haven't. Looked. We did. Oh, we no, did. No, Someone wrote in, Russ, and said, uh, please discuss if anyone else thinks Vicky sounds like Jen from the IT crowd. Oh, really? <laughs> oh I'm flattered. <laughs> Can't stop picturing Jen when Vicky talks. Doubly flattered. Thanks, but I then, looked, I then looked up that woman, and she's from Hounslow. Yeah. And then she moved to Surbiton, and she went yeah. to a posh school, and she went to Oxford. So uh -huh. I don't see how she sounds like you. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. Um, but, uh, well, she's not northern. She's not northern is all I'm saying. <laughs> Blimmin' heck. It's easy defensive. Uh, there is an episode of the It Crowd where Jen, I think Jen like drinks about 20 blue WKDs and gets pretty abusive. <laughs> and so that's when that. I sound like her. <laughs> be that. Then you can't tell us apart. Okay, fair enough. No, I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm actually thrilled. <laughs> So I'm back. I'm back to reading the emails now. So and now I'm in that account. So expect more of those. If you think if you think Vicky sounds like anyone else, let us know. Oh, please don't. <laughs> why, why did that sound like such a threat? I'm back to reading the emails now. <laughs> um. So I would change um the moment of narration in this film. Oh, I hate um, that. That's a good point. I fucking hate that. Tarantino doesn't normally use narration. He uses it quite well in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood when you, I think it's Kurt Russell's doing the narration. But here it's his voice that comes in. And the first that's the first time he's done that. And I don't think it's necessary because he explains when and where and how the coffee got poisoned and who knew about it. Mm. But you absolutely could have shown that um, and not 
uh, said it. Uh, yeah. And I think you could have and should have shown it during that big speech. And I'm guessing he didn't want to do that because it would take away from Samuel Jackson's big moment. But this yeah. way, it just feels clumsy. And that way, I feel like it would have actually made that, that break, the interval or the break in the normal version of the film, that much more exciting. Because not only have you just heard this crazy speech and seen this violent act, but you also know that, you know, mm. they're about to drink poison. So I, I feel like he did himself a disservice there. Yeah. It does does become very much like the Tim Curry movie Clue at that point. <laughs> Shout out for Tim Curry. Yay, you're back on track. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's weak, but it's there. <laughs> and on that bombshell. You... Is everyone done? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. so let's move All on right. to... Go on, Alex. Sorry, you do this bit, don't you? No, it's fine. You do it. I love it when you do it. You do it. All right. Are you ready for the verdict? The verdict, Sam. Sorry, I thought I was doing it. Uh, yeah, let's do the verdict. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, Okay, Alex, you seem to uh, want to speak. Okay, so let's no, have your verdict first. I'm, just, I'm thrilled. Um, my verdict is: uh, I think these are both great films. Uh, I'm really pleased you picked them, Chris. I thought initially I was like, okay, I guess the connection isolated. No idea how many similarities there are between these two films. Um, I think the Hateful Eight is brilliant. Um, I think the Thing is brilliant. I'll keep it short. I'm going for the film that I love the most, quite simply, of two films that I love. I'm going for The Thing. One point for The Thing. Okay, Vicky, uh, which of these two films are you going to go for? I would also like to say I thought it was a good week. And for the same reasons as Alex, like I got it, but then they're really closely intertwined. And that's always a treat um, when we've got two films that have got um, a sort of sibling relationship in that way. So However, if anything, the winner this week is the person who picked the films, which is me. I think that's what I was about to okay, say. Okay, join yeah. us for the next Clash of Titles. <laughs> when we and decide this week's winner is Chris Tilly. <laughs> uh, but the thing opens masterfully, but just left me confused in the middle as to what I was supposed to be scared of or following. And it just felt a bit that the story had been sacrificed in order to show off, admittedly amazing, but special effects. And there's nothing more important to me than story. And so therefore, The Hateful Eight wins for me. Oh, bollocks. <laughs> no. I didn't oh, wanna... Don't pretend... Don't pretend you don't like having the final say. No, I didn't. I didn't want to on these two because I think I know which direction I'm going in. Um, a problem I had with the thing watching it this time is having done it, having done Alien so recently, I found them very similar, and I just think Alien is a superior film um, where we got to know the characters a bit better. Um, and as I said on this sh- on um, uh, the last show, I, I really hate the reveal at the start of the thing and. Um, and I feel like they could have been smarter with the, the stuff towards the ending. But there is that, you know, there's that issue with 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 Hateful Eight in, in the similarities with his previous films. I find a bit cringeworthy. Um, but I liked all the stuff happening in the foreground and the background. And I like how it was about storytelling and myths and legends. And and, um, and uh, people complained about Hateful Eight that it was too talky. But that's what I'm here for with Tarantino films. Uh I love hearing his words. I love spending time with his characters. I don't care about the length. I, you know, if we get one every three years, I want three hours of it. Um, so I'm really worried I'm going to lose all my horror credentials here, but I'm picking The Hateful Eight. Yay! And I'm, I'm disappointed in myself, and I was not expecting to go in that direction. But watching them back to back, I think uh, there are more problems. I think the thing... There's too many issues with it this time. This this podcast is spoiling films for me because I'm analysing them in ways I never have done before and it's killing me. Well, that's good news. Well, it was, was the last Clash of the Titles. Chris Tilly bows out on the hateful... <laughs> uh, we'll shut it down, Chris. I don't want you to I don't want you to have films ruined for you. I'm ha- Do you want to... Should we call it a day? Yes. Okay, great. <laughs> it's been real, people. Um, I'm... I'm glad we split our final episode into two separate episodes. <laughs> just to be weird. Dra- drag out the sadness. <laughs> um, all right, then. So, The Hateful Eight. Oh, that is this week's winner. It bests 
the thing, much to my disappointment, but I'm not too bothered this week. I'm not going to get angry because I like both of them. So there we have it. What do you think, though? You can get in touch with us on Twitter. As usual, we are at ClashPod on Twitter. And as Chris said, um, he is uh, he's back to reading emails. Take from that what you will, but you can now email us. It's show at ClashPod.com. Victoria, you're picking next week's, uh, not next week's anymore, next episode's films. Uh, We've already announced them online, but if you'd like to do the verbal confirmation, I'd be interested to know again. I would love to. We've spent a lot of time talking about testicles. And so in that spirit, Chris, I would like you to watch The Full Monty Da, 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 da. Alex, I would like you to watch, and you, you are going to have such a lovely time. God love this yeah. film. Uh, yeah. Please, will you watch Magic Mike? Yes. <laughs> yes. Two yes, movies yes. where we talk about Channing Tatum and testicles. I'm in. Because. <laughs> Because we talked about testicles in the in the, in the hateful eight. I, I, no, it's fine, it's fine. Anyway, yeah, I'm I'm good with that. Yeah, that's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I'm good with that. I don't know why I've said that's fine so many times. I'm not nervous about my feelings towards Channing Tatum and how much I love him and how excited I am about the next. Whew, I don't know. Two hours. I'm probably going to win. Watch Magic Mike right now. I love Magic Mike. Am I monologuing? <laughs> I'm just a fan of the movie. Carry on. What are we saying? Channing Tatum. Who said that? <laughs> are you finished? <laughs> I am. Yep, I am finished. Um, in more ways. Ah, oh, yuck, yuck, yuck! <laughs> <laughs> Pack it in. This lockdown. This is not good. It's, it's like there are no consequences. There are consequences to your actions. Chris has gone quiet. He doesn't know what to think. <laughs> He's on the phone to his lawyer still about the Christoph Waltz revelation earlier. <laughs> Right, let's uh, call it a day then. Uh, let's let's just end. Uh, thank you very much for listening. As you just heard, we are going to be doing Magic Mike and the Full Monty on our next episode. We'll be starting with the Full Monty. So if you're limited with your time, do that one first and then do Magic Mike. Please do subscribe to us and uh, rate and review us. You know, the two R's that we rely on, that's the third R. It's uh, on Spotify, on Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts, you can do that. Thank you very much for listening, and congratulations to our winner, The Hateful Eight. We'll be back on Thursday. This was a Stakhanov production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. 
That's stamps.com. Code program.